Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up, there is a growing movement to have universities divest from companies doing business with Israel as the war with Hamas continues. We'll take a closer look at how universities decide to invest their money. Some school districts have seen an influx of migrant students in recent years. We'll hear how one has handled newcomers and why some teachers say more help is needed. A study points out places where people from different backgrounds are more likely to run into each other, and you might be surprised at the locations. They are common restaurants. Also, what role do forests play when it comes to climate change? We'll learn about a famous banker from central Illinois who's the subject of a new book, and also why this will be a special year for cicadas. The insects will be emerging in the Midwest this spring. Those stories and more coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Get ready for a -a once-in-a-lifetime event starting this spring. Two large broods of cicadas will begin appearing. In fact, these two have not emerged at the same time in more than 200 years. You'll know when it happens. They can make plenty of noise. But what do you really know about cicadas? We decided to speak to an expert. I'm Katie Dana. I am an affiliate with the Illinois Natural History Survey, and I also have my PhD in entomology. I like to joke that I'm Dr. Cicada D. She knows her cicadas, and this year is a big deal for the insects and for researchers like her. So I've actually been looking forward to this for a number of years. Uh, What's going to happen is we're going to have two different broods emerging in the same state. So a brood is defined as a group of cicadas emerging in the same year at the same um, geographic area. These two broods, they will overlap a slight amount, but it's really special for Illinois because we will have a 17-year brood in the north half of the state, which is brood 13. And then in the south half of the state, we're going to have a 13-year brood, which is brood 19. Um, Now, brood 19 is also known as the Great Southern Brood, um, and it extends an incredible distance all the way to the East Coast. And so what I think is really special about this year is the the giant geographic extent of the magic cicada, the periodical cicadas that are emerging. Um, And so the last time that these two particular broods emerged at the same time was 221 years ago. You know, we're not going to see this again in our lifetime, so it's going to be pretty hard to escape them. There are some areas in like western Illinois where we get a different brood in different years, um, but this is going to be really special for Illinois. So we will see much higher numbers? You know, it's not going to be different than a typical periodical cicada emergence to a large extent. But, you know, a brood emergence in itself is already a very, very intense event. But generally, they actually compete underground. So it's not going to be that there's going to be a huge, huge number. It's going to be the same as just like broadly, we're going to have a lot of cicadas emerging across the state. But it's not going to be cicada in. So when will we start noticing cicadas showing up? I mean, uh, anything different than what we've seen in the past and about what, what is the time of the year for that? So for periodical cicadas in the Midwest, we usually see them coming out in about mid-May. If we were further south in the U.S., we might see them as early as um, mid-April, but it really depends on soil temperatures. 
I, I've looked back through some of my records and it's pretty consistently been about mid-May that I, I see them starting to come out of the ground. And it takes about a week maybe for them to really start ramping up their calls. So, you know, they won't get too large in number that first week. And so it's towards the end of May that you really, really see more and more cicadas out and singing. And then uh, individuals live about two to four weeks. So you can imagine that we start seeing them kind of dying back in mid-June. The two birds that you mentioned, is there a difference between them that people might notice, either how they sound or what they look like, or is there any way to really distinguish between the two? The the difference that you might see between the broods um, is not going to be something that, you know, a typical person would be able to notice. Um, even as somebody who's been studying for cicadas for going on 10 years now, um, I still have a bit of difficulty in telling the different species apart. Um, what is really cool about these, you know, cicadas is amongst these different broods, we have seven different species of magicicada, um, which is the, the genus that they're all in. Um, and those different species all have a generally different call. So as you're traveling across the line of where the one brood ends and another begins, you're not going to be able to really see a difference. We're talking with Katie Dana, an affiliate with the Illinois Natural History Survey. Two large broods will be emerging this year in Illinois. Katie, while they are common here in the state, what purpose do they serve? Uh, you know, it, it's it's a difficult question because there's so much to say on this topic. At least I, I think so. So if we're just talking about periodical cicadas, one of the incredible things about their life history is the whole reason that it works is they come out in such large numbers that all of the predators that eat them are completely full and can eat no more. Once they're full, there's still plenty of other cicadas out there to sing, to mate, um, to uh, you know, lay eggs for the next generation. And so when we talk about predators, we talk about um, snakes, so many different species of birds, small mammals, large mammals, your pet dog even. So there's plenty of animals that eat them, uh, fish as well. Uh, so there's plenty of evidence that these are actually really helping the uh, wildlife. Beyond that, they also, at the end of the season, once they die off, they, they do actually, they do break down with bacteria and fungus and release those nutrients back into the soil. Now, cicadas feed on a very low nutrient um, food source underground. Um, they're feeding off of the roots of the plants. And in general, they're not doing any damage. There is some evidence from different countries of, of maybe some slight damage from some of our larger cicada species. But in general, we're not seeing any above ground impacts um, because they're feeding slowly over a period of 17, you know, 13 or 17 years. Um, but they do provide a really important food source for a lot of animals out there. I know people who like the sound, and then I know people who say sometimes it's deafening. You know, they hear it so much. Will this be a bad year for those people that, that don't like to hear cicadas? It's hard to, to imagine not liking cicadas, <laughs> but I, um, I think that they will be loud. I've, I've heard it likened to like a vacuum cleaner, but, you know, it's going to be very localized. So what these cicadas do is the males will call for the females, but they also 
tend to congregate together. So there will be certain trees in your neighborhood where all of the males will be calling from. And also, like, I hope that people, when they're listening to these cicadas, can start to pick out some of the different calls that are in there. Um, one of my son's favorite calls is from the pharaoh cicada, which is one of these periodical cicadas, and it goes pharaoh, pharaoh. And so it's really easy to pick that particular call out of the general din <laughs> of the noise of the cicadas calling. Now, these periodical cicadas, in general, each individual is actually not that loud compared to other cicada species. It's the sheer number of them calling at the same time that really can be a little bit deafening for people. Now, when I've had my um, some of my field technicians in the field collecting cicadas for me, some of them do have to wear earplugs because some of the other species that we have in Illinois are actually much, much louder than these cicadas are. So the singing, the calls, as you pointed out, that's for mating purposes? So the calling of the cicadas is actually to draw in the females. And they do a little bit of a call and response. So the males will sing um, and the females will come closer. So they fly in. And then the females will do what's called a wing flick. And that wing flick actually sounds a lot like somebody snapping their fingers. Then the male will come closer, the female will wing flick, and it goes back and forth until they're actually mating. Now, if you're out in the field and you want to draw in a cicada, you can actually do the wing flick yourself. So you can snap your fingers at the end of each section of a call, and the cicada will actually fly to you, land on your hand, um, it's a really kind of magical, you know, like you're communing with nature sort of moment. What made you decide to study cicadas? So I came to Illinois from California thinking I'm going to study honeybees. I'm going to study pollinators. And I still do, but it was, uh, you know, I came from California where we have cicadas, but we don't have them like we do in the Midwest. And so when I got here, it was the beginning of August. And I just remember getting out of the car and just hearing that sound, you know, the sound of summer, right? It was so loud and it was so alien to me. You know, ever since then, my love has grown. Um, I am particularly interested in cicadas that uh, rely on prairie ecosystems. Illinois was, you know, once covered in quite an extent of prairie, and now we are down to less than 0.07% of our original prairies. And so these cicada species that exist in these prairies across the state are very imperiled. With these uh, cicadas coming again this year, uh, what is the one thing you want to get across to folks? I think that the one thing that I would really love to get across to people is this is not something that happens anywhere else in the world. This is a truly special event that I hope people will take the time to go out and experience. You, you can't you can't ex experience this anywhere else in the world. We, North America is truly the place to be when it comes to, you know, these periodical cicada emergences and the sheer number and biomass is unlike anything else. Um, and I hope that people can go out and experience it because these are, you know, somewhat rare events, especially for people that are living locally. This This won't happen again, you know, depending on where you live for, 13 years or 17 years. And, you know, I personally will go out and, and travel across the U.S. to see these, but these are going to be in your own backyard. And it's truly magical. Katie Dana is an affiliate with the Illinois Natural History Survey and holds a Ph.D. in entomology. 
She researches cicadas. You can help with that research by downloading the app Cicada Safari and help track the emergence of cicadas this year. America's forests are one of the cheapest climate change solutions out there. Several estimates show forests capture roughly 13% of the nation's carbon emissions each year. But a recent Forest Service report says climate change will lead to forests being net emitters of carbon over the next 50 years. Some environmentalists say that conclusion will lead to more logging and harm climate security. Rick Brewer takes us into a national forest. I'm trying not to slip and fall on piles of wet twigs and branches, walking towards a timber harvest deep in northern Michigan's Huron Manistee National Forest. My guide, Matt Bono, the harvest inspector, gives me the play-by-play after the machine picks up a fully grown jack pine out of the ground like a toothpick. Cuts the trees to a certain length that meets our technical specifications and zips them, debarks them, delimbs them, and then it cuts it to length. And this is just one of thousands of timber harvests that take place all across the Forest Service's 145 million acres nationwide to help create various wood products and pulp. Just how many trees should be harvested on national forests has been a long debate. Now the discussion centers around climate change. Conservationists argue national forests can play an even bigger role in soaking up carbon emissions. When forests reach maturity on federal lands, the knee-jerk reaction is to cut them down. They've reached the peak of their value. Zach Porter is a member of the nationwide coalition Climate Forests. Porter argues forests across the Midwest and Northeast have not been allowed to reach their full maturity because the U.S. has been caught in a logging cycle for centuries. Are we willing to make changes based on what the science is telling us, which is that forests function best when left alone? But science is at the heart of this debate. The Forest Service isn't convinced older trees will continue to hold as much carbon in the long term. Every 10 years, the Forest Service files a report on the state of national forests. And this year's study included 50-year carbon projections. A representative from the Forest Service wasn't made available to discuss the report. But it concludes that climate-induced stress will lead to older trees releasing more CO2 than younger ones over the next five decades. Carolyn Ramirez is a staff scientist with the Natural Resources Defense Council in Chicago. She says this conclusion could lead to more logging and further harm climate security. While they didn't make management prescriptions in this report, it's very influential on Forest Service directives. And that there'll be carbon emitters suggests that we need to have younger forests and that we need to be cutting down a lot of the older stuff. The Forest Service says that older trees are not more resilient to climate-caused stress than younger ones. A spokesperson wrote that if strategic thinning does not take place, forests will be more vulnerable to wildfires and could lead to harmful changes to forest ecosystems. Ramirez sees this differently. She says the science is clear that mature and old-growth forests are more resilient. She also says logging releases lots of carbon. The Forest Service traditionally underestimates carbon emissions from logging, but when You cut down a tree and you have to move it somewhere and you process it into something, you're losing a lot of that carbon. The Forest Service says they thin forests, not just for timber or reducing wildfire risk, but to keep forests healthy. After tromping through a section of the Huron-Manistee National Forest that was logged several years ago, Forest Service silviculturist Keith Conan explained this area was thinned to reduce stress on trees by giving them more space. And what it does, what that does, is focus uh, available resources such as light, water, nutrients to the residual remaining trees that are left there. 
and that reduces competition, it increases growth. At the end of the day, the timber industry and logging trends are driven by market demands, not official forest management plans, according to Chad Papa. He's a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Forestry at Michigan State University. Estimates show over 50 percent of the nation's forests are privately owned. And so by not harvesting someplace, you're most likely just pushing that harvest off to another place instead. And so the net effect is essentially the same. Papa says the Forest Service and these conservationists agree more than they think. They both recognize that national forests are a space for climate solutions, but a path forward will likely have a few stumps in the road. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Rick Brewer. This is statewide. Illinois' Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton has launched the state's first-ever healing-centered task force. Alex Degman explains. The idea is to ensure that trauma victims have prominent seats at the table as lawmakers craft statewide policies to help them. Stratton says the task force's first meeting included a number of people who have been there and have personal experiences to share. I think we've gotten to a point in our society, at least here in Illinois, where we've said if we really want to break some of the cyclical and intergenerational aspects of trauma and the harm that it's caused, We have to get to the root. The group will look at mental health services provided in the state and determine how they can be improved. It has a year to submit its report to lawmakers and the governor. I'm Alex Degman. We've got more to come on Statewide. Stay right here. Welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. A partial collapse of a Davenport apartment building last year killed three people and displaced over 100 residents. Now some renters in that city live in fear their homes could be next. Rachel Duckett reports. Rhonda Wilson lives in an apartment at the Mary Crest Senior Campus in Davenport. When she moved in five years ago, she hoped it would be her last move. But soon, she began to worry about her safety. I I don't want to move, but I am afraid. I have very bad anxiety. If you say rain, I get scared. Snow with the weight of that on the roof is scary. I've had dreams or nightmares. First, it was the leaky roof. One bucket, four buckets, eight buckets. And um, the water is literally coming down the walls. I have pictures of that also. Then the mold. They did some alcohol or bleach wipes and then they painted over it with what they call a sealant for the mold behind my recliner, which gives me anxiety. They are doing the roof, but when they go, okay, the apartment above me is deemed inhabitable. What's going to happen to me down here? And a letter from her caseworker. I am on Section 8. And um, I thought that was kind of unusual, her sending me a letter asking me to please um, look over the information that she sent me in the mail to find another place. What alarmed me was that she said immediately. Wilson tried to find a new apartment. But she uses a wheelchair to get around, and the apartments she looked at were less accessible and more expensive than her current one. And she's not alone. Dennis Platt from the Quad Cities Tenant Alliance says there's a shortage of affordable housing in the Quad Cities. Our housing stock in Davenport is old. It's 
on average, like 50, 60 years old. And so every year we're losing a certain amount of housing stock just from natural deterioration or failure to maintain homes, duplexes, triplexes all around the city. And so every year we're having shrinkage of our housing stock and we're not replacing the affordable part of our housing stock. The Tenant Alliance is part of Quad Cities Interfaith. The group holds a monthly open meeting and provides resources like landlord background checks. In October, it held a town hall to ask the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, to do more thorough inspections and fund affordable housing. Hannah Griggs is an organizer with the Alliance. We uh, initially did ask HUD to come to the town hall, uh, but they were they said they were unable to come. So mm-hmm. our strategy was to um, was to involve the community in in calling HUD. Last month, the Iowa and Illinois HUD field directors, plus the regional director for the Kansas City Hub, met with Quad Cities Interfaith. Wilson shared her story, and Platt shared some local data. We looked at all the different housing deficiencies on a heat map, and we could see them very clearly sprinkled through the city, uh, clustered in certain parts of town. And then we did an overlay of a 1936 um, red line map of Davenport, and they aligned in a, in a terrifying way. Griggs says the HUD representatives promised to educate Davenport officials about potential solutions and funding options. The first one is receiverships. If a building is falling into disrepair, instead of having the, uh, the city sell that back to a real estate developer, it could be put into a receivership so that a nonprofit could reserve it for Um, low-income people. Another uh, idea that was put out was community land trusts. Uh, In a community land trust, the the community owns the land together. She says HUD has also contacted the Iowa Finance Authority and is conducting a compliance review of Davenport, including rental inspections. In the meantime, the Quad Cities Tenant Alliance continues to support renters, like Rhonda Wilson, with education and resources. I'm Rachel Duckett. Central Illinois native Nelson Dean Jay is not exactly a household name, but Bill Engelbrecht aims to change that. Correspondent Steve Tarter interviewed Engelbrecht, co-author of The American Banker in Paris. It really is surprising, as I mentioned, uh, Nelson Dean Jay's name, I get a big who. <laughs> and um, you simply, in my opinion, you simply cannot name uh, Anybody from Central Illinois who who really has had this much influence on America and maybe even certainly Europe and and to some small extent the, the world that this man had and nobody knows about him. And he just to give you a little background, banker. I mean, obviously the title American banker in Paris. Uh, grew up in Elmwood. Uh, how did he get to Europe? Because, you know, we, we're saying Paris. So how did that happen? Well, he, he, w- he grew up in Elmwood, as you mentioned. And then from there, he went to Knox College in Galesburg. And from there, he went to, into finance into, in Milwaukee and then into World War I. Uh. And, uh, and while in World War I, he, uh, he did some amazing things there. And he was decorated and I'm still st- stunned by this. There's a lot of great people who've done great things in war. This man was decorated by four countries after World War One, mm. and uh, did this. And while he was uh, after the war, he bumped into some folks uh, that were associated with J.P. Morgan. Mm. 
And J.P. Morgan himself, the old man, uh, came calling one day and said uh, that he would like to have Nelson Dean Jay go to Paris because he had some problems, J.P. Morgan did, had some problems with his bank in Paris and said, would you take over my bank in Paris? And, of course, how do you turn that one down? <laughs> and, Let's see, Paris in the 1920s? Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, that was the place, wasn't it? I, oh, my gosh. Uh, they had just uh, passed the uh, inability for you to drink here in the United States. So if you were an adventurous person, you sort of headed for Paris. And so it was the, the Roaring Twenties. He came in the door with everybody else in the Roaring Twenties in, wow. in Paris. And obviously his accomplishments there were such that, you know, what what happened after that? I mean, you know, obviously we have, uh, you know, a huge... J.P. Morgan behind you, uh, wh where did that lead? Well, you know, as, again, he was president uh, of the bank, and during the Roaring Twenties uh, became some of the most interesting things that uh, Nelson Dean Jay did, and, and just incredible uh, interactions with people like uh, Madame Marie Curie. Uh, I find it interesting sometimes when I mention Madame Marie Curie to uh, young people, I get another who— but uh, for those of the rest of us, probably the most accomplished female scientist ever and two, two Nobel uh, Prizes. And anyway, he helped uh, financially. He helped her start oncology uh, institutions in Warsaw and in Paris. He spent time with uh, Charles Lindbergh. Ernest Hemingway was an associate of his, as was people associated with the Nazi regime. He, he had to. He was a banker. And so financially, there were interactions there. So th those are just a few of the people that he spent uh, time with. Bill, we're talking with Bill Engelbrecht about the book that he's co-written with Carl Taylor about Nelson Dean Jay, American Banker in Paris is the name of the book. Um, you mentioned or had mentioned in, online that he welcomed Lindbergh to Paris after the, the transatlantic flight, which, of course, was a huge thing, but later criticized Lindbergh to his face for what, his views about Germany or America, the America First thing, or what was that about? Yeah, let, let me just back up one second oh, sure. on, on, on Lindbergh going to Paris. Um, very few people know that one of the reasons Lindbergh was able to get to Paris is he had to have some sponsors. Well, surprise, surprise, the sponsor, one of the big sponsors of, of the flight was the J.P. Morgan Company. Uh -huh. And so when he landed uh, in Paris... In his jacket pocket was a business card, and the business card was the person in charge of the welcoming committee in Paris. It was, the business card was Nelson Dean Jay. <laughs> now, wait a minute. This guy was a kid from Elmwood, Illinois, and he was welcoming Charles Lindbergh to Paris. Amazing. And just, just amazing. So, again, to, to finish up on, on, your, on your question, yes, there's sort of a tattered uh, history to uh, Charles Lindbergh, and he started to become sort of friendly to the Nazis. Right. And he uh, was very, he thought they were just wonderful in what they were doing. He got some awards, uh, interestingly enough, with to the, from the support of the United States as well. But uh, Nelson Dean Jay told him, hey, in so many words, you sort of need to knock it off. And he actually told him to, to pipe it down a little bit and maybe take a little time in the Austrian Alps with his kids, maybe to get himself straightened out. And then he did some other, uh, Lindbergh, did some other strange things. Uh, lots of books about him, uh, but at the same time, 
He had an association with Nelson Dean Jay for 40 years. And their wives, really? their wives, interestingly enough, um, were very close, closer than Lindbergh and, and Nelson were. And in the book, you'll find a incredibly warm and very moving uh, letter from Anne Lindbergh to Anne Jay, that's Nelson's wife. And toward the end of the book, it'll sort of get you a little verklempt. It's such a warm mm. uh, relationship between the two. It, you know, we, we mentioned the, the name of the book being The American Banker in Paris. This isn't, a, this isn't a book about a banker. This isn't a book about finance. This is a book about right. a, an interesting human mm. being that came out of central Illinois and uh, did some just remarkable things. I, and thanks to you and, and Carl for, for writing this and kind of alerting us about it. Is Elmwood, are they, are they likely to do something? I mean, has that been brought up? Because I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what you would do, you know, at this juncture, it's many years later, but you think they'd want to honor one of their favorite sons or, or you know, something like that. Yes, uh, I've spent uh, quite a bit of time talking with some of the uh, uh, leaders out in Elmwood and uh, with a book in the libraries, and we're talking about introducing it in to the Elmwood School. And I've made some suggestions that at some point we need to get some kind of a banner up there. Sure. We need some kind of distinguishing uh, uh, notification that Elmwood is the seat of this guy. But uh, Nelson DJ and his wife are both buried in, in Elmwood. But yes, the, and there are a few distant relatives still hanging around uh, oh. Elmwood out there. How, how long did he live? What was his age when he died? He Nelson was, Dean Jay. yeah, he was uh, 91 when, when he passed away, and it was in 1972, I believe. And uh, so he, he had a, he was sort of in his latter years, not, not well, nor was his wife, but had a long, productive life and uh, was a personality uh, sort of bigger than life as a person. Did he come back to Elmwood at the period? Oh, yeah, he came back to Elmwood a number of different times. He came back, and he was honored by Knox College uh, when he when he had come back. Sure. You know, not often because he had he was in World War One. He was in World War Two. He was a busy man, and relatives and stuff were still back here. So he traveled back and forth uh, somewhat frequently. That's author Bill Engelbrecht speaking with Steve Tarter about the new book, The American Banker in Paris. Official teachings of the Catholic Church oppose abortion, but the majority of Catholic adults in the U.S. did not believe Roe v. Wade should have been overturned. A vocal segment is Catholic abortion doulas. They call themselves the faithful majority, including here in Illinois. Mawa Iqbal brought us this story in 2023, and we revisit it now. A pile of books sits on Emily Likens' kitchen table. One of them is called Decision Assessment and Counseling in Abortion Care. It is sort of known as the, the Bible of abortion counseling. So one of the chapters in here uh, specifically addresses religion, emotional conflict. Here, spirit. Likens is an independent doula based in the south and west suburbs of Chicago. She's a full-spectrum doula, which means she offers emotional support and guidance to people throughout all stages of family planning, which includes abortion care. And she's Catholic. But Lycan says her faith doesn't contradict her work. It informs her on how to help people as they seek and go through with an abortion. Sometimes when women feel like they're committing a sin, she tells them, Forgiveness is the ultimate crux of Christianity. I remind people that God loves them and God forgives them and that like God sees their pain. 
Likens has been a doula for over a decade, but she'd been surrounded by reproductive health care since she was a child, helping her mom as she went through a pregnancy via in vitro fertilization, witnessing a home birth at her neighbor's. And then at 21, Likens had an unplanned pregnancy. And I did a lot of thinking and a lot of praying and a lot of talking to other people and reading people's experiences. And at the end of the day, I was wholeheartedly certain that I needed and wanted this abortion, but I, I was grieving. I was heartbroken about having to make this choice. I felt shameful for putting myself in a situation where I needed to make this choice. Um, the partner that I had was like, also felt deep shame and didn't want us to talk about this to anyone. But she says for all the shame she felt, she was met with overwhelming kindness and acceptance at the abortion clinic. And that is what activated her to assist in abortion care. Likens currently lives in a conservative Catholic community just outside of Joliet, where she says abortion is usually met with silence. Kay Hoding, who lives about 700 miles away, is hoping to break that stigma. The Pew studies, the Gallup studies, all of which show time and time again that like Catholics actually pretty much agree on abortion, and they think that abortion should be legal. Hoding is a Catholic abortion doula based in Washington, D.C. She also serves as a writer and managing editor for Catholics for Choice, an international nonprofit that promotes access to abortion within the context of Catholicism. They often hold demonstrations, like one they did to counter the 2022 March for Life at the Basilica of the National Shrine of Immaculate Conception in D.C., the largest Roman Catholic church in the country. When we projected on the bell tower, we projected facts. We projected things like one in four abortion patients is Catholic. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has repeatedly rejected Catholics for choice as a Catholic organization. Hoding says the bishop's messaging has left many of her Catholic doula clients to feel isolated. And when she tells them she is also Catholic, she says many of them are brought to tears which is something that Likens has experienced as well. She says she will often pray with her Christian patients and guide them through the process by asking questions like, Is there a manifestation of this situation where God actually agrees with your decision to have an abortion and sees you as a person who is hurting and in, in need of kind, care, compassion, saving? And since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe last year, she's seen a shift among some of the more fundamentally religious doulas who would refuse to help patients seeking abortion care. And now almost all of the birth workers I interact with very proudly and openly express their, you know, their political views about abortion. And the belief that abortion is a part of the spectrum of health care that doulas can help people navigate, no matter what their faith background is. I'm Mawa Iqbal. Coming up on statewide student demands for divestment raise questions about where universities put their money. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Coming up, how one public school district in Illinois is dealing with an increase in migrant students. But first, at her graduation in December, Janine Alharithi walked onto the stage and unfurled a banner with a message for University of Illinois leaders, divest from genocide. Al-Harithi is one of thousands of students across the country demanding their universities stop putting money into companies doing business with Israel because of the ongoing conflict in Gaza. It's a controversial ask. Some supporters of Israel find the whole concept offensive. But it got higher education reporter Lisa Corian Phillip thinking, what do universities invest in and why? Janine Al-Harithi is Palestinian and a leader in the University of Illinois at Chicago chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine. 
we really are just like watching the suffering through our phones and there's only so much that we can do. On the other hand, she says, We're here in America for a purpose. We're here for a reason. We have so much uh, political power and we need to utilize that in ways that matter. So the call for divestment. Universities invest mostly through something called endowments. The money comes from donors. It's meant to cushion the school from drops in enrollment or government funding. To better understand, I called Robert Kelchin. He's a researcher at the University of Tennessee who knows a lot about the topic. I'll start by saying what an endowment is not. It's not this giant piggy bank that colleges can use however they want. It's a series of often thousands of small accounts, most of which are restricted to use for very particular purposes. Kelchin told me universities spend no more than 4 or 5 percent of the value of the endowment each year to pay for things like faculty positions, student aid, and research. So they keep the principal and the endowment keeps growing. He says the richest universities can get really creative with how they invest. The super wealthy colleges operate almost more as hedge funds. They have access to alternative strategies. For example, Harvard is one of the biggest landowners in Latin America. Most other colleges have a lot less money to work with and use more traditional products like mutual funds and index funds, Kelchin says. Like we do with our retirement accounts. There are relatively few colleges that do all their management in-house just because it's such a, such a specialized thing. That brings us back to divestment and why it can be so tricky. In recent years, for example, student climate activists pressured a handful of schools to limit investments in the fossil fuel industry. If you're not allowed to invest in oil companies, then if you have any index funds that track the broader stock market, that is oil companies. Do you need to get out of that? Supporters of divestment reject the idea that it's all that complicated. They point to the 1980s when, after years of student protests, more than 100 American universities scaled back investments in companies with ties to apartheid South Africa. Northwestern professor Elizabeth Shuckman heard was a kid then. People who are organizing right now are definitely studying and definitely uh, consulting to see, you know, how did you do what you did? But Heard says the debate this time is different. There's an intense political divide over the violence in Gaza and passionate support for Israel among students, parents, and donors. Plus, university leaders have to do what's best financially for the school. If you ask the board of trustees, should the investments of the university be aligned with the university's mission, they would say yes. And part of that mission is to ensure the longevity of the institution. So far, at least, Hertz reading has been correct. Pro-Palestinian student activists haven't been able to persuade local university leaders to even discuss their investments publicly. It just makes me kind of feel like lesser than, um, but also kind of sparks of fire. That's Saha Hatib another leader at UIC's chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine. Because it's like, okay, well, if you don't listen to me when I talk, then I'll yell. If she can't get divestment, she says she aims to, at the very least, raise awareness about the Palestinian cause. Lisa Corian Phillip, WBEZ News. Some northern Illinois school districts are seeing an increase in migrant students over the past few years. 
Peter Medlin reports on how Rockford Public Schools help their newcomer students and why some teachers say they don't have enough support. The auditorium at East High School in Rockford is packed with students presenting science projects. They're all new to the district. In fact, they're new to America. They're from countries across the globe, Iraq, Syria, and Uganda. That's not even counting students from Spanish-speaking countries like Venezuela who go to Jefferson High School. Many of them have been in the U.S. and Rockford for less than six months, and some arrived much more recently. The carbon atoms have six protons, six neutrons, six electrons. This student from Tanzania has only been in Rockford for less than a month. He and his peers have been working on their My Favorite Molecule project for a few weeks now, and they showed off detailed PowerPoint presentations about the types of bonds the molecule is made of and where it's commonly found. There are 58 high school-age newcomers in the district and dozens more in the middle and elementary schools. Susan Griffith teaches them science and math at East High School. She was just hired this year because of the increase in newcomers, and they're close to needing to hire another teacher, too. She says a lot of her students are coming into her classroom with trauma. Many of them have even been in refugee camps. It's not easy. I mean, I got four new kids this week. I've got new kids coming next week, and they know zero English when they walk in the door, and I'm teaching them chemistry. But it's extremely rewarding. I'm exhausted every single day, but I love it every minute. Some arrive with very little prior education. Griffith sees how hard her students work to catch up and get ahead. I assigned all of fourth grade, a math teacher here helped me. It was 460 assignments. They did it in two weeks. Regina, she spent 11,000 minutes on Khan Academy since the mid-September. Dr. Misael Nascimento is the executive director of the Bilingual and Multicultural Department at RPS. And they say they come as a junior in high school. So there's not enough time to teach them English and there's not enough time to teach them content. The probability of someone like that graduating, very small. He says they need more subject area teachers for these kids who can help them with both language and academic support. Nascimento also says the district is planning a newcomer center, which would be a hub for these students and their families and connecting them with community resources. Students aren't in newcomer programs forever. If students come in with no prior education, they could stay for as long as five years before transitioning into English as a second language and general education education classes. There is no newcomer program at the elementary school level, and students are scattered across the district's many elementary schools. They receive 30 minutes per day of direct ESL instruction. Maria Altamirano is a bilingual teacher at Washington Elementary School, and she gave public comment at a Rockford school board meeting expressing her frustration over a lack of support from the district. When we get newcomers, we are not even notified that they're coming, but yet we're expected to serve them as much as we can. Altamirano says they spend a lot of time translating assignments and assessments into the student's native language. She also echoed the need for more mental health support for her kids some of whom have been separated from their families or had parents killed. A lot of them, as I'm teaching in English, this new curriculum that we have, all they can do is sit there and just stare. And it hurts me because I want to serve and I want to help them as much as I can, but I don't have those resources that I believe I should get from the bilingual department. 
Eric Archer is a social studies teacher and curriculum leader at Risa Middle School. He says that their bilingual program is overloaded with students beyond state guidelines. He says there are more students who need bilingual services than classrooms available. And that means that students who can't read or write English sometimes end up in his general education social studies classes. I got a new student last week who doesn't speak a word of English, and I've got to try to figure out how to teach that student American history. Well, how does that work? Google Translate for some of it. Thankfully, some students around are able to translate. There's a couple people in the building that I can send them to for extra help, but it's not an ideal situation. I can't even imagine what that would feel like as as a new student. So here you're dropped into my classroom with 32 other kids and you don't have any idea what's going on. Nascimento says he wasn't aware of this problem and that it's not an issue throughout the whole district. And he says he would follow up with the building principal. In the meantime, back at East High School, Susan Griffith is trying to build her newcomer students' academic language and help them feel more comfortable in their new home. We took them to an art museum. They'd never been. It's learning about our community, our state, and our country. That's our social studies units. Yesterday, we took them bowling. I have hilarious videos. They visited a farm and got to meet miniature horses. There are also very practical trips, like going to meet the mayor, going to a restaurant to practice ordering food in English, or Rock Valley College. There's three of us, and we will do whatever it takes to make their lives better and help them learn. Because even though the system isn't perfect, and even though they don't always have the most resources, their students still need them. I'm Peter Medlin. Segregation can be a way of life, but there are some places where people of different economic backgrounds come together. A pair of researchers recently determined where people might rub shoulders. From Chicago, Esther Yunji King brings us the story. Maxim Masenkoff teaches economics at the Naval Postgraduate School in California. He started out with a question. Where in the world are we most likely to encounter someone different? The answer was surprising full-service sit-down restaurant chains. Places like Olive Garden, Chili's, and Applebee's. That's where people from neighborhoods at the top 20th and bottom 20th percentile in income are likely to mix, according to a recent national study titled Rubbing Shoulders. Masenkoff and a sociologist from MIT studied cell phone data to find patterns for where folks come in contact with and maybe even befriend each other. In the U.S., High-income and low-income groups are both isolated. When they do one of their typical outings, they're a lot more likely to encounter someone else who's either rich or poor. Masenkoff says parks, churches, pharmacies, and schools are most segregated by class. And that's because those places are generally close to home. We all kind of live near people with similar socioeconomic status. But what makes chain restaurants, with their expansive menus and reasonable prices and rows of vinyl-covered booths, places where people mix across class? You can sit at this booth right here and I'm running a menu. Thank you. I set out to an Applebee's on Chicago's northwest side to talk to some patrons. That's where I met James Williams. They have decent deals and they have great prices. Oh, and they have great drinks. The 60-year-old construction worker loves the endless boneless wings for $12.99. He also likes the great service. They treat me the same as if I was a regular guy just walking off the street. They have to accommodate the rich, the poor. They have decent everything, so this works for me. I ask him if he's ever befriended anyone he's met at Applebee's. Well, I'm not that kind of a guy, so well, I met you. <laughs> well, I came to you. Yeah, but I'm you're, you're friendly. You seem like a nice lady. 
I took my nice lady self later that evening and went with my family to Olive Garden in southwest suburban Burbank, right near Midway Airport. Can I get the never-ending soup, salad, and breadsticks? As we wait for the food, I look around and see grandparents, kids, white people, black people, Latinos, all huddled over their giant plates of spaghetti or fettuccine alfredo. I head outside and meet Valentin Rodriguez, who works in video production. He and his son, Valentin Jr., tell me they just met an Arab man who speaks Spanish. They say they meet all kinds of people from all economic backgrounds. Everyone likes Italian food. You know, I mean, there's no chef here. You know it's like microwave food, but it's consistent. Consistency was a running theme. People like the predictability. The eggplant parmigiana will always taste the same no matter what olive garden you go to. Jennifer Hernandez says it's the variety that brings people together. There's something for every occasion, um, whether you want pasta or whether you want something sweet. Um, you know, you could come dressed up, you could come dressed down, you could come for special occasions. Like her birthday. I just turned 20 today, that's why we came. <laughs> Had she ever met someone at Olive Garden and become friends with them? No, not yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. <laughs> And that's exactly what the researchers of the study are talking about. They connected their data with numbers from a different study about cross-class Facebook friendships. And here's what they found. In the places where you see a lot of cross-class friendships, you also see the kinds of chains where you see mixing under that roof. It's not saying that if you randomly plop an Olive Garden or an Applebee's somewhere that you'll see a whole bunch of really beautiful new friendships blossom, but it's consistent with that idea. He would not go so far as to say bottomless wings and unlimited breadsticks are the answer to segregation, but he says his study could be a blueprint for people who want to befriend those from different backgrounds. Esther Yunji Kang, WBEZ News. We're out of time for Statewide. Thanks for joining us and be with us again next week. We'll return with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Find us where you get your podcasts through the NPR app and at nprillinois.org. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois public radio stations.